You are familiar with the expression, from darkness to light. But could you imagine, in a split second, losing 100% of your vision? And going from light to total darkness? This is The Winding Stairs, Episode 10. You have arrived at The Winding Stairs, a program dedicated to Masonic education and the art of self-improvement. I am your host, Juan Sepulveda, a professional artist and master mason, 32nd degree of the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite in Freemasonry. Thank you for joining me again on this episode, and I have the distinct pleasure of having with me my dear friend and brother, Marcus Engel. He is a best-selling author, public speaker, and the story of his life is very, very inspirational, and I wanted to share it with you. Marcus, thank you for having me in your home. My pleasure, and thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to do this. Excellent. I'm very excited about it as well. Um, I Just to give you, uh, brothers, a uh, a little background of how I know Marcus. Marcus goes to the same lodge, the same lodge as I do, uh, Eola 207 in Orlando. And we've known each other for about two years, right? Two or three years. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, we see each other occasionally and have brief conversations as much as the time allows. But I've, ever since I met him, I've, I've known a little bit about his story and I want to let him tell you a little bit about it. Needless to say, it is, it is life changing. It changed his life. But what I love about it is the fact that he, when he talks about his story, it changes other people's lives as well. So Marcus, give us a little, a little bit of a background. A little background. Okay. So, uh, I guess if brothers were sitting here with us, uh, they might be a little interested in why I might not look exactly like the next, next brother you're sitting next to in Lodge. Uh, for one, I have a 75 pound yellow Labrador retriever seeing eye dog laying here at my feet. Um, I am totally blind and have been since age 18. Uh, my story, I'm a, I'm a native Missourian, grew up in the St. Louis area, uh, for the first 10 years of life. And then really my, my hometown is a little wide spot in the road called High Hill, Missouri, about an hour outside of St. Louis. Uh, I guess my story really starts there, just being a red-blooded American kid. And like most red-blooded American kids, um, whenever it came time for me to go off to college, I, I wanted to choose the best college experience for me. And growing up in such a small town, I wanted to have a big college experience. So I went to the second largest university in the state. And six weeks into my freshman year of college, I came home for the weekend, and that's when life changed dramatically. I came home for the weekend, went into St. Louis, met some friends, went to a St. Louis Blues hockey game. And on our way home from that hockey game, the car in which myself and my three friends were riding was struck broadside by a drunk driver. That crash not only took 100% of my sight instantaneously and permanently, but it's kind of crazy to think this, but the, the actual loss of sight 
wasn't the worst part. The worst part was the physical damage because literally I crushed every bone in my face, every bone from the hairline down through the chin, both cheekbones, uh, jaw, lost almost all of my teeth. Some of the most horrific facial trauma that the plastic surgeons and ear, nose and throat docs at Barnes Hospital had ever seen. So laying there in that hospital bed, I had to make the choice. Where do you go from here? You know, I'm, I'm an 18 year old kid, freshman in college, just getting life going. And now I am blind and facing 300 hours worth of reconstructive facial surgery. So I had a lot of soul searching to do and a lot of pain and recovery and rehab. And that's kind of where the story takes off from. How long were you in the hospital right after the accident before you could actually begin spending time at home? I was in the hospital initially for an incredibly short 46 days, My God. Um, which may sound like a lot, but compared to the damage that was done, uh, it was a, a very short amount of time. I'm going to attribute that short length of time to the physical condition that I was in at the time of the wreck. I was 18 years old. I was, you know, strong young man. I was working out every day, physically fit. Um, I, I played football in high school and I'm a, I'm a big guy. You know, I was six one, two hundred fifty pounds at the time. And I, I just have to think that the reason that I was, was able to get out of that hospital and survive that crash was simply because of my physical shape. Was your, your hunger for life and your desire for adventure and that whole desire for living, was it, in your opinion, as strong as your physical attributes were? That's a good question. And I would have to say yes, but that doesn't mean that there weren't times while I was laying in that hospital bed that I, 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 I think anybody who goes through such a major trauma and loss as I did, it, it's completely normal to have thoughts of suicide or thoughts that I just don't want to go through this. I, and I certainly had those thoughts too, but at some point I had to break it down that I've got three choices here. Number one, I can die. And once those initial thoughts of suicide passed, I've never returned to those thoughts. Uh, my second choice is I can sit around for the rest of my life and have everybody wait on me like I thought all blind people did. Uh, keep in mind that I was 18 years old. I had never met another blind person, and now I was blind. Or the third option that I finally chose was simply to understand that this has happened. This experience cannot be changed. Um, I can't go back and change the past. All I can do is try to create as bright of a future as possible for myself. So laying there, and, and I, I definitely remember laying there in that hospital bed um, with my head swollen up to the size of a basketball and my jaws wired shut and a trach in my throat, um, unable to speak. So I had to write out everything on a pad of paper. And I wrote out the phrase, I want to get back to college. I want to see my friends again. Or, I want to be with my friends again. That became my marching orders 
from those early days of hospitalization. I presume that as you continued to recover, that goal that you're going after or that motivation at first, it was that you wanted to actually go out and see your friends again, go back to college. Mm-hmm. That goal continued to to change. It became some something else and something else. And I imagine you still have different things you're looking up to, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think your your goals in life change. But for the two years of physical rehab and recovery, my goal was simply to get myself back to college, to try to get back to the place where I could pick up the pieces as best I could. That wasn't an easy proposition. I mean, like, like I said, it was two years of back and forth through the hospital. I think there was over 12 months when I did not eat solid food uh, just due to the oral damage. There were six months when I couldn't walk, six months that I couldn't sit on a toilet by myself. Just an amazing amount of physical recovery that had had to be endured. Then once I was able to walk again and eat solid food again and speak again, that's whenever I had to make a really tough choice, which was really to break it down. Do I want to go back to college? Absolutely. But to get back into college and be successful at college, I have to learn how to be blind. So that meant a six-month stint at the Colorado Center for the Blind in Denver, Colorado. It's a adult rehabilitation school that would teach adults like myself who had lost their sight how to live independently and just get those skills of adaptation. That takes us to a point of your story that I, f- I find fascinating. There is a movie that was produced based on your story. I had the privilege of seeing the movie, and I think it's, it's inspiring the dynamic of how they help you get back on track and, and become independent again. I would imagine it would be super difficult for a strong young man who is independent to just in the blink of an eye become a hundred percent dependent on other people and in a way at the mercy of people. Part of what I like about the story is the challenges that you're presented with, but you there have a connection, or at least I see a connection with what ends up becoming your career as we know it today. Right. And let me step back to one thing you talked about earlier, which was the movie that was created about my story. My autobiography is called After This, An Inspirational Journey for All the Wrong Reasons. A few years ago, someone came to me and said, we want to make a movie based on your autobiography. And they said, it needs to be a short film so we can enter it in short film contests. And I said, okay, well, how, how short of a film? They said seven minutes. <laughs> and my autobiography is 300 plus pages. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to focus it a little more. And they said, we love the part about the drop. Well, the drop was an exercise that every student at that school for the blind in Colorado had to do prior to graduation. What happened is that during the months that I was there training, I was so trained in orientation and mobility, uh, and that just simply means getting around. This is before I had this big dog by my feet here, or any dog for that matter. Um, it was before I had a CNI dog. I was using a big, long white cane, as you'll see many blind people have. And the drop is an exercise 
that really tests your orientation and mobility skills. So they dropped me off at an unknown location and they said, Marcus, we're not going to tell you where you are. We're not going to follow you. And you now have to find your way back to the school. By the way, on your honor, and here's the kicker, you are only allowed to ask one question of a pedestrian along the way. Wow. Talk about restrictions. <laughs> it, it, it was restrictive. And, and, but it, and whenever I first, whenever they first told me that this was going to happen, I thought, Oh my gosh, there's no way I'll ever be able to do that. But as with anything, as in masonry, as in life, you, you take it off one bit at a time and you learn the skills along the way. So by the time they actually did the drop, I was, I was well prepared for it. It took about two and a half hours to get back to the location where I needed to get back to. And most of that time was spent sitting at bus stops uh, because they dropped me off kind of out in the middle of nowhere where the buses didn't run real frequently, oh. which which was great. I mean, because whenever I accomplished the drop, it was it was such a feeling of confidence and self-esteem. It's like, OK, if I can do this, mm -hmm. if I can get dropped off in the middle of nowhere in a city 800 miles from my home that I've never been to before, I can probably accomplish the other goals that I have in my life. And if anybody wants to see that movie, uh, you can see it for free online at thedropmovie.com. We are in the process of trying to get this as a full-length feature film. Of course, that takes some dinero. So if anybody out there has a few mil laying around and they want to support the arts, just get in touch with me <laughs> and we'll see what we can do. <laughs> it has been my life mission to find that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, that's very, that's interesting. And, and you mentioned also Freemasonry, and it makes me think, of course, there are things that we experience in the craft that require that the candidate doesn't see things. And he is at the mercy of whomever is conducting them. But there is, there are specific patterns, and there are specific sounds, and there are specific things that cue the candidate where he is. And where he's been, where he's going to. And I kind of see that parallel. You're dropped in this place and you're almost being guided by whatever your other senses uh, allow you to. Correct. Allow correct. You to do. Yeah. And you have to, you have to learn to trust and rely on your skills. And that's, that's what I had to do. I, I had learned in that six months of training to use my ears to orientate myself and not just my ears, but all of my senses to figure out where I am and figure out where I'm going. So between those, between my senses and my training, I was able to trust myself enough to take that first step out of the car and get dropped off. That's, I definitely encourage all the brothers who listen to this to uh, go check out that movie. I'll include a link on the show notes so that it's easy for you to just click through there and, and find the movie. This episode of The Winding Stairs is brought to you in part by FreemasonryArt.com. With a growing selection of fine art and collectibles, you now have a place to go find beautiful art inspired by the symbols and lessons of our honorable fraternity. Whether you're looking to decorate your lodge or to find a special gift for your newly initiated brother, this is the place for you. Every item is proudly made in the USA and found exclusively through our website. FreemasonryArt.com also features Masonic regalia, including the newly designed composite lambskin apron. 
an elegantly constructed white leather apron. Carefully constructed with genuine lambskin, these aprons are a great option for the discerning brother who wants to wear a clean and elegant apron to the lodge. For more information, visit freemasonryart.com. Among the topics um, that you write about, I'm going to read a couple of the, the book titles. The first one that I ever read about you is called Everyday Inspiration. It's just one of, that's one of your recent. Uh, that is, that's the most recent book and that came out, uh, in early 2013. And that actually, the, the writing of that book, the compilation of that book, the stories from it have taken place over the last 10 years, but to actually put the book together and put it out as a product, uh, came from when I was doing my grad work at Columbia University in 2011 and 2012. That became one of my final projects. Tell us a little bit about narrative medicine and how it actually fits your your life story. Great. Well, let me step back in time one step to completing the drop. Uh, after I completed the drop, I was able to return to college a month or two later, uh, studied at college for the next five years. You know, they talk about college being the four best years of your life. And I liked it so much. I had five. <laughs> um, so I, so I, during my undergrad days, my, my bachelor's is in a field called sociology. As a junior in college, I started speaking professionally, telling my story in, in a way that would hopefully inspire people and motivate people and Above all other things, I wanted to change people's attitudes and their their mindsets. I wanted them to understand that, look, you can go through some of the most horrific things imaginable, but if you trust in yourself, you trust in your creator, you trust in your colleagues and friends, you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. So I, I began, and, and there was a lot of prevention wrapped up in there too. When I, when I first started speaking, I was 23 years old. So I talked to high schoolers and college students about the, the dangers of impaired driving. And I still do that to this day, especially through the non-for-profit that we formed last year, which is called the Blink Foundation. But in the last five years, I started speaking a lot more, and, and I, I market myself these days into the world of healthcare. I figure when you've lived at the other end of the stethoscope for as long as I have, you have seen the good, the bad, and the profound in patient care. And I want to be able to share those stories with healthcare professionals to give them some idea of the patient's perspective Plus, just giving them little ideas of what what can you do to help this patient retain their dignity and independence, and what how can you communicate most compassionately with them to help them get on their feet and on the road back to recovery. So while I was searching out, I, I guess I've always known that I wanted to go on to another whatever my next level of education was. And because I'm a writer and because I speak to healthcare audiences, I was looking around for something that would be able to incorporate healthcare and literature. 
So I wrote to one of my clients, which was a professor at the Columbia University School of uh, Columbia University School of Nursing, and I just asked her opinion. Do you know of anything where I could blend my two passions together, healthcare and and writing? And she said, "Have you ever heard of narrative medicine?" No, I have not. And so she said, well, Columbia University has the only program in the country of narrative medicine. And I popped on the website and it's like, wow, this is a program designed for me. Yeah. Everybody asks narrative medicine. That sounds interesting. What is it? The way I describe narrative medicine is to say narrative medicine seeks to take the stories of healthcare and to turn those into something from which we can learn. So it might be a, a physician learning about, um, the, the pain and the struggle of their patient. It might be a nurse learning about something that, uh, he or herself learned while interacting with a patient. It may be about self care. It's just learning from these stories so that these stories don't fall on deaf ears, so to speak. And when an experience happens that we learn from that experience, walk away being able to implement that wisdom and knowledge that we've received. It's definitely easier to deal with data and numbers in when it comes to medicine or pretty much any other any other field, whether it's business or, or anything. Working with numbers is a lot easier because you can put them in a computer, you can have all these calculations being done, probabilities, statistics. But here comes into play that that human factor, that whole, uh, the narrative, the, the story behind what's actually happening. That's, that's what drew me into when I saw that you had a degree on narrative medicine. Well, how perfect is that? Exactly. Yeah. You're able to, to take a little bit more than just numbers and statistics. You're taking these people's lives story. Those individual stories are a lot more powerful and influential. I am not a stats and numbers guy. Um, I barely made it through college algebra. So I, I don't mess with stats. I don't mess with numbers. But what I do want people to embrace is the stories that have happened to them, that are happening to them, that are going to happen in the future. And to be able to look at those stories from all their different angles so that you can gain some wisdom and knowledge from the things that are happening. Uh, specifically in, in my work, I, I do a ton of work with the frontline healthcare professionals, talking at keynote presentations at hospitals and healthcare associations. Most of my audiences are comprised of nurses. Nurses in droves are, are, are just burnt out. They're, what it, Compassion fatigue has set in where it's long hours. The work is physically demanding. Patients are sicker than they've ever been before. You have all the negative interpersonal dynamics that you can have in any kind of environment where you work with other people. And all while a nurse is trying to take care of a patient. And I think that because of all those outside factors, so many nurses are just dealing with burnout. So my focus with narrative medicine was to create a seminar, and I'm also working on a book by the same title, called Narrative Nursing. 
And this is uh, designed to try to take those stories that nurses nurses tell, and nurses tell the best stories. And nurses nurses are awesome storytellers. They've seen everything. <laughs> they have seen everything, and usually their stories are funny. And maybe it might be uh, what what some in the in the psychology world would call gallows humor. But I, I love the stories of nurses. So I want them to be able to embrace those stories as valuable and important, not just tell a funny story. I want them to be able to see what can I learn from this experience. Of course, not all, not everybody that listens to the program is, is in the medical field. Of course. But what I find that could be of interest to, to the brothers is that regardless of where we come from, what our story is, there's a thread that runs through it all. And one of the things that I see very powerful about what what you do and how it compares to Freemasonry and the journey that we go through, it's still that same point, the narrative. It's that permanence of of the story. You could look at a statistic today, you can look at some numbers, or you can hear the latest report on one thing or another, or a condition. But when you actually hear a story that's related to it, you recall that story many years down the road you'll still remember absolutely i mean it just just think about that stories have been here since the beginning of time the the story of adam and eve in the garden of of eden that that is the that is the quintessential basis of human culture is stories and the oral tradition that's handed down um all of us in masonry know our story about when we were seeking light and we love to share those stories with other Masons. That's Those are the kind of things that I don't want people to just sit around and tell over coffee, but actually to think, how did this impact and influence my life? There's a quote here that I took from one of your presentations. You said, there is nothing I can do to change what happens. All I can do is change the future. To me, that was very powerful. I am one person that I don't like to argue or spend too much time arguing about what happened, what we did, you know, what was said. Okay, let's move on. Let's figure out, we learned from what happened. What's the next step? Precisely. What is, what's the next thing that I can do to continue moving forward towards whatever goal I have or towards the betterment of the relationship or the advancement of one field or another? What can we do now? I see that you apply that in, in the book, The Other End of the Stethoscope, because you're practically making the medical professionals aware of that other side. You're making them aware of, you know, what happens next. This is not just a one interaction. It's a relationship. Exactly. Tell, it's a relationship. tell us a little bit more about how when a professional, whether it's in healthcare or any other field, when they actually realize that, how do how does their life change or their profession improve? I will give you the quintessential story because because I'm I guess I'm considered an expert in patient care and the patient experience. Um, I will gi- I will give you the one truth that I know that is not just medical, not just healthcare related, not just communication related, but it's a need that every human has. The night that I was rolled into the emergency room, I was clinging to life, just 
just horribly, horribly injured. I was really laying on death's doorstep, could die at any moment. The only thing that was pleasurable during that first incredibly wretched night was the fact that there was someone who held my hand throughout the entire night. Um, when I woke up, anytime I would come back into consciousness, uh, this hand was holding mine. And I could tell that this hand was female. And anytime I would stir, this hand would squeeze mine and I'd squeeze back to let this person know that I recognized that they were there. This very quiet female voice would give me the most bare bones information. This, this voice said over and over throughout the night, Marcus, my name is Jennifer. You were in a car accident. You're in the hospital. And every time Jennifer would repeat those words, she also put the, the next two words that she said, I believe, are the two most compassionate words any human being can say to another. Jennifer said, I'm here. I'm here. And I didn't even know where here was, but I knew that in my most vulnerable moment, I wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. That somebody was there with me, helping me, holding me, protecting me when I didn't know what was going on. And that is a human need that we all have. We all want to reach out whenever we feel threatened or vulnerable or raw or scared, whatever the case is, we want to know that we are not alone. That's powerful. And that it, there comes into play also the, the importance of listening and paying attention. Absolutely. Because not everybody in, not, not everybody asks for help when they need it. Precisely. So on the other hand, there's that importance of paying attention, making our experience also about others. How can I make you feel better? You, you probably had no other way of knowing that there was someone else there other than Jennifer actually saying, mm -hmm. I'm here. Right. And, you know, I think that's, that's powerful. If we're able to do that in lodges, there's a hundred different things that are, that are happening. There are brothers that are going through some uh, medical, medical problems other people are having difficulties with their relationships other people are just you know there might be a, a note of discordance between brothers if we actually commit to listening intently and seeking for those opportunities where we can actually lend a hand then we make the entire experience of the lodge different. Absolutely. And that's not just a lodge experience. That makes the entire experience of life yes. better. When, when we have relationship with other human beings and we all know that we are supported and cared for in this community. I, I am a firm believer in the field of dreams philosophy. You know, the field of dreams philosophy is that build it. Yeah. If you build it, they will come. And so I've sat through many, many Masonic meetings where people talk about marketing and replace yourself and building up the numbers in the brotherhood. And I feel like if we are quality men, if we act in a respectful, dignified way, we will attract yes. the kind of people that we will. It, it just becomes, uh, it just becomes a magnet. We will attract the kind of brothers. So instead of going out and, and looking for, for men to join our fraternity, why don't we act like 
the beliefs and, and, and the tenets of our fraternity, and we will attract those men. Mm-hmm. They will want to know what makes you different from the guy next door. The experience that you had with this compassionate soul being there in the moment that you needed her the most has become something greater than just what happened that day. Talk to us a little bit about the I'm Here movement. Certainly. The the story of Jennifer was first told in my autobiography after this and the first healthcare book that I wrote called The Other End of the Stethoscope. That's the story of Jennifer and how those two words, I'm here, gave me so much comfort when nothing else could. Uh, several, several years later in 2010, I released another book called I'm Here, Compassionate Communication and Patient Care. And the Jennifer story has been the foundation of what I do for years. Well, Jennifer has also been the missing piece of the puzzle because I never knew her last name. I never knew what position she had in the emergency room. I never, I've never known anything about her other than she comforted me that night and her first name. And again, somehow I knew that she was 20 years old. Uh, no way of contacting her, nothing. So earlier this year, 2013, I was, I was booked by the hospital that saved my life, Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis to come back and keynote several presentations for all of their employees. On one morning after I had given a speech, and I had several more speeches to do that day, but my client came up to the, came up to the stage and she said, uh, we have a surprise for you. We found Jennifer. My God. And to be able to hold her hands for the first time in 20 years and say thank you uh, was absolutely one of the most incredible moments of my life. Um, what's even cooler than that is that my wife got a two minute heads up that we would be reintroduced and whipped out her handy iPhone and caught it all on film. Yes. So if you want to see that film, it's at imheremovement.org. So the I'm here movement, what is it? I think that we get, we as human beings, we are so distracted. We are so caught up in our own worlds and we all need to take time to breathe and relax. So there are companies out there and hospitals and healthcare organizations that are trying to do everything under the sun to provide quality care and cut costs and improve the patient experience. And to me, every relationship can be benefited by those two simple words. I'm here. So meeting Jennifer ignited what we're calling the I'm here movement. And our goal is simply to inspire every healthcare professional out there that they have that power to comfort patients and to inspire every human being to know that human presence is sometimes it's the only thing we can do, but it's also the best thing we can do. That's wonderful. That's, that's very good. And, you know, I would like to, to say to our brothers, if there is one thing that you take out from, from this conversation that we've had is that is the importance of being there that being present in the moment i think it's so powerful to be able to sit across another person and and share 
some time. You know, oftentimes we're just, we're buried in, in our phones and our apps and our, you know, different things distracting us when, you know, we have people to, to interact with. And many times they need us so much that unless we're paying attention, we don't see that need. I think that, that we are so distracted in our society that we need to stop and breathe and to connect and to look people in the eyes and hold somebody's hand and let them know I'm in this with you. And this is life. Life is all about human connection. Marcus, thank you very much. It has been a privilege to speak with you today. I hope that you join us again sometime soon. I would love to. And and just for listeners of the Winding Stairs podcast, uh, if you want to shoot me an email, um, the first, let's say, five people <laughs> who send me emails saying that they heard uh, the interview with Marcus Engel and Juan on the Winding Stairs podcast, send an email to marcus at marcusengel.com. Just tell me where you are. Uh, what lodge you're a part of, and I would be happy to send you a complimentary signed set of all four of my books. And if you want more information about that too, you can look at MarcusEngel.com. Thank you to Brother Marcus Engel for spending some time with us and sharing his light. You can reach him at MarcusEngel.com. I want to thank him for his generous gift to the first brothers who sent him an email. You can email him to marcus at marcusengel.com. And even if you hear this in the future, but you are in the medical field or in the educational field and you feel there's value uh, to sharing his story with your students or colleagues, make sure to send him an email as well. He will definitely leave an impression on them that will affect your business. Also, I want to encourage you to sign up for our email updates. I share some information and some uh, some inspiration there every now and then. You'll find messages that you cannot find anywhere else. So you'll be also the first ones to find out about some of the projects that I have been working on. Some are very exciting, and I cannot wait to tell you. But the first people to hear about them is going to be through the email list that I have been putting together. Simply go to thewindingstairs.com, and you'll see a few uh, fields there for you to sign up for the email updates. Also, I want you to please join the conversation. We are on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash Masonic Fundraiser. You can also find us on Twitter at windingstairs33. Also, don't forget to continue your Masonic education by visiting our friends and brothers at wcypodcast.com. That's where Brother Robert Johnson, where he shares very enlightening information for us Masons. Also, I have been enjoying lately the Midnight Freemasons. You can visit midnightfreemason.blogspot.com, and several brothers publish their articles there. Very interesting, very enlightening. You'll definitely get great benefit from visiting them. Um, all of this information that I've mentioned, I have included links in the show notes. So visit thewindingstairs.com forward slash zero one zero. That's for episode 10 that you have just listened to. Make sure to share your opinion through the social media and comments through the blog. I thank you once again, and I invite you to join me again next time 
as we continue our journey up the winding stairs.